how is there a church full of Make America Great Again hats and Black Lives Matter folks all in the same church, like worshiping Jesus, putting all their issues as a second? How does that even work? It seems like they're actually part of another kingdom. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. Thanks so much for listening and tuning in. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with the subject. Now, we're not always going to agree, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges, but not barriers. Our guest today is Evan Wickham. Evan is a musician and pastor from San Diego, California, where he, his wife, and five children live. He leads Park Hill Church, a community that gathers and scatters. Welcome to the show, Evan. Hey, Joe. It's good to be on. It's good to connect. Thanks for saying yes. For sure. So, Evan, before we dive into our conversation today, how did you get introduced to church, to faith? What's some of your spiritual background? Yeah, so I'm, I grew up a pastor's kid. My dad's a worship leader. My mom's a worship leader. Um, they were hippies turned Christians, not late 60s, early 70s in what is commonly known as the Jesus People Movement. A bunch of hippies came off came off drugs and free love culture of the 60s and found Jesus, and it became this big kumbaya fest that became a church planning movement that many denominations now point to as a point of revival for their communities. And so uh, my my personal background is, is very Calvary Chapel. I don't know how many listeners know of Calvary Chapel, but it's just very simple Bible teaching, kind of evangelical, and and so that's my roots, and and I still have that in my blood. One thing that my uh, <laughs> one thing that my spiritual parentage gave me is like freaking read your Bible and pray, and so like I still do, <laughs> like I I love the scriptures, although my view on them has become more nuanced, and I love prayer and spiritual practices. And I think, again, my perspective on what prayer is has also become nuanced and hopefully more robust and, um, and more true, more ancient. Uh, so, so, yeah, that's kind of my upbringing. Uh, I'm also a worship leader. My brother, Phil um, Wickham, is, you know, rock star worship leader guy, and I'm a huge fan. And, uh, and so that's kind of the world that I inherited, grew up in. And kind of weaved in and out of, to be honest. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So today on the show, we're talking about church life and how we function. But before we dive into that, Evan, you were doing music more regularly with a few albums under your belt, correct? That's right. So what role did that play in some of the deconstruction that we were talking about before? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had a conversation a couple days ago about this. So I'm, a, uh, again, a worship leader, songwriter. I had a, a publishing deal um, with a Christian record label in Nashville. Loved it. Absolutely a fan of what God has done and continues to do through the many songwriters that feed the church, uh, the music that she sings on Sundays. And so, yeah, I have three, four albums out. I say three or four because one of them is Christmas. It doesn't really count, but you know, count Christmas record. But uh, yeah, and and most of it's original music, and it's birthed out of not just my own journey, but my collective experience with um, the body of Christ as part of 
what God is doing in the world through local church. So the first record was born out of like youth camps in my early 20s. And just watching uh, young people respond to the move of God in their lives and, and creating a soundtrack for that season. So every album I've done has, has been a soundtrack for whatever season I've been a part of in church life. And so the deconstruction side, and you know that word, it's kind of a, it's kind of a buzzword along with its close cousin, postmodernism. And, and honestly, those words are used in different ways, I think, by different people. Like postmodernism, um, the word postmodernism, it was originally an architecture word. It wasn't even about like spirituality or, or development of thought. It was about how to build buildings that aren't sterile like the modernists did. And so if you built a building that, like, you walk around New York and you see these quirky-looking high-rises that bend as they reach the sky, that's a postmodernist structure. Um, so that's where that word was first used, but it wasn't until this guy, um, uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, he, he applied that word to a history of thinkers like Jacques Derrida, these guys that would call into question the Stoic modernism of the past. And modernists would say, you can find out what you need to find out if you just use your logic and reason. There is an objective truth. And if you just, if you just follow all of the lines of logic and reason where we say they should go, then you'll find the bedrock of reality. And so postmodernists came along and just said, that's not that we call BS on that. That's not true. There is no bedrock. It's we actually, postmodernism is basically an incredulity towards meta-narratives. There is no one story that, that guards and guides reality. And so when that creeps into the church, you have a, a unique problem. You have a unique problem where people are inherently, their default posture is cynicism. And so in my, late, in my early to mid-20s, I began to feel the weight of postmodernist angst that led to deconstruction of certain received traditions in my life. And, you know, I, I think some of that's good. I think it's incredible to truly have the freedom to question your received traditions. So healthy. Like if you if you're in a if you're in a tradition or you sense you're not free to question that tradition, um, like there's some danger of asking truly deep, dark questions about where you grew up, then you might be in a toxic tradition. Um, so for me, I, I would never say I was like in a toxic tradition, but I would say there were questions that I, I didn't feel comfortable asking, and, and I wasn't comfortable with that discomfort. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll just, I'll just get super concrete. So I remember being in my 20s, leading worship at a church, and our church invited this speaker, a six-day creationist, uh, young earth creation guy, uh, to come and speak. And he, and he basically said this. I was fine. You know, he believes in young earth creation. I'm, I'm calling that into question at the time, whatever. But he basically said this statement. Um, you can be a Christian and believe in evolution. You'll just be a Christian with an authority issue. And I, and I was like, I was like, oh man, he just took with his right hand what he gave with his left, or whatever. Like, like to me, to 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 honestly explore science, 
within a tradition that says you will be basically a black sheep if you end up on the wrong side of this debate, um, then, then there's not a genuine level of safety to, to honestly ask the question. And, um, and I remember there were key moments like that where I'm like, wow, either I'll deconstruct to the point of disastrous spirituality in my life and become a toxic person to everyone around me, or, or I need to submit to the Lord Jesus in a, in a, in a community where questions like this are not only, not only encouraged, but genuinely wrestled through at the top level of authority all the way down. So yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what led us to want to plant a church, <laughs> which is um, which seems backwards. But we wanted to plant the kind of community that uh, opens the door to every level of of questioning and honest searching for answers. And there is dishonest questioning, and I think. That's the dark side of deconstructionism. That's the dark side of um, a lot of the deconstructing we hear in, in popular Christian discourse nowadays, where there's not really a goal of rebuilding. There's just an addiction to picking. And, and that, to me, is, is a fundamentalism on the left, um, where there's not actually an openness and a humility to, to end up submitting to anything. And, and I knew I was on trajectory to that in my arrogance. And so I needed to find a community where uh, I, could, I could stay put and commit and submit and end up basically reconstructing. Now, you and I had a conversation a couple of days ago where I th- think a lot of our listeners are within this spectrum too. So you're in this stage of deconstruction and reconstruction really isn't on the table at this point. There's a lot of this cynicism as you were just discussing, and then you're moving a little bit more left and maybe you come back a little bit more right as you see things politically and culturally. And yeah, you know that all these things are going on and Mm -hmm. you mentioned something that I'd love for you to unpack if you can, this idea that we all think we're in the middle. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a ton more to say about that. I just, <laughs> I look to my left and I see people, and I look to my right and I see people, and I think I'm okay. I think that's everyone thinks they're in the center. Um, we we think we're balanced. We tend to give ourselves a lot more grace than we do um, people we disagree with, especially when there's a tribe at stake. Um, if your tribe has clear lines where you need to exist within those lines, then you want to be centered. You want to be in the tribe. You want belonging. We're designed uh, to want belonging. And honestly, I don't even like the left-right spectrum. I think and talking in terms of left and right minimizes the human experience. I think we're more multidimensional than that. Um, but I, yeah, I think <laughs> when I think back 15 years ago, when I thought differently, I thought I was balanced. And today I think I'm balanced. I'm probably going to think I'm balanced in 15 more years. Um, but when I actually sift through the shifts that I've made, uh, they're not significant. Like I haven't denied the creeds, the ancient creeds of historic faith, still hold to the inspiration authority of scripture. Uh, but I hold it, again, differently than I did 15 years ago. Um, but it's funny, I still think I'm balanced. <laughs> And what's hard is as we're continuing this process, especially yourself as a pastor and, and, you know, our listeners either 
as church leaders or attenders, this is a complex thing because it's multicultural. Yeah. It's multi-generational. It's multi-sexual. It's multi-everything. And, and that really becomes difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, as a pastor yourself, within your own experience, how do you then filter all of these things throughout all these different multi-processes? Yeah. yeah, that's good. I mean, I mean, to me, again, my wife and I, we planted a church. And when I was in junior high and high school, I was a pastor's kid voted most likely to plant a church, and I hated it. In my, I went to a private Christian school. I hated it. I got that yearbook vote. Uh, but here I am, right? And, and so planting a church, you do, you do, you do ha- have the privilege and the responsibility to like shape a community after a specific way of Jesus. Um, and Jesus has an ethic. Jesus has commands. Jesus has a way of being in the world that he calls the narrow way that leads to life. And, and so what does that look like in, in a world where there are multicultures overlapping and intersectional concerns all coalescing together around us? I live, I'm in San Diego where there's a strong military presence, which usually is associated with like conservative values. And there's, and, and there's a, a huge LDB, LGBTQ hub here in Hillcrest, um, which tends to be associated with progressive values. And so you have these two far right and far left uh, spectrums coalescing in San Diego, where everybody just wants to have fun in the sun and drink a Corona on the beach with a fish taco. And, and so you have all of this together. It's, it's kind of a unique city in that way. And, and so how to lead a church that follows an ancient Semitic rabbi in a 21st century kaleidoscope of, ref- of left-right concerns is uniquely challenging, for sure. Um, if you ask me how to do it, <laughs> I mean, I think we talked about the four Ds um, a couple days ago. Perfect segue, man. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I, have, I have a mentor who, who's been so helpful. His name's Dr. Gary Bashirs. He, in the 90s, he was, he was the president of the Evangelical Theological Society, and he's just sharp and so kind. And I don't know where he got these four Ds, but um, I use them constantly when I'm talking with leaders about how to think through this, um, this ocean of diversity and how to clearly communicate what a church is supposed to stand on in the middle of all of it. And again, if you're not a Christian, you're listening to this, that's this is going to hit you differently than it will a Christian, um, but as a community following Jesus, um, here's the, here's the four D's that have helped us kind of just see the light at the end of the tunnel on a lot of these issues. Um, number one, die for. What are the die for issues in our community? And number two, divide for. What are we going to actually part ways? What what logically what forces us to just say you know what we can't walk together, which is tragic. And then number three is, is debate for. And debate for is like, what, what do we get real angsty about? But at the end of the day, we have a beer together and it's just life as usual. And, and, and then finally decide for. What are the issues where we can just agree and make a decision um, and, you know, wake up the next day and don't even think about it? And so th- those four kind of levels of, of approaching issues have been really helpful for us. Um, yeah, die for, divide, debate, decide. 
what would you categorize as a die for issue? Yeah. Yeah. So for, for me, um, as, as, a, as a Christian who believes that God has come in this Jewish Nazarene named Jesus, um, uh, I, I, I would hold, like if someone put a gun to my head and said, will you die for this issue? It's not even a question. Put a bullet in my head. It's done. There's only a couple things. And, and number one, the God-man. God came in the flesh in Jesus. And, and then number two, that that God-man resurrected. The resurrection is a real bodily event that shapes the hope of the Christian community. And then number three, and this one is, is a catch-all, I admit, but it's the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. Now, how you interpret the scriptures is a matter of lifelong journeying together and disagreeing and agreeing, pushing and pulling. But those are the three for me, really. Um, Jesus is the God-man, resurrected from the dead, and he has these documents for us that have some authority over how we're supposed to live. Uh, What they mean is up for interpretation, um, obviously, because you have to interpret. We don't even, most of us don't even read the original languages, so we have to interpret. Uh, But the fact that they carry authority to me, is a die for. And that is where most of this deconstructionism comes into play. So, you know, the, what, most conversations in modern progressivism are about that. Like, that's, that's a hallmark of postmodernism, a highly suspicious posture towards authority. Um, postmodernism is marked as, like, a suspicion that all authority is just a power grab. And so if you come in contact with the tribe of Christians who claim the authority of Scripture, they're really just grabbing for you and power over you. And I actually don't think that's helpful. I think that can be true for sure. Um, but I think you have to separate all the, all the baggage in the church from the reality of the authority of Scripture. There is authority from God in a unique way that rests in this collection of documents. Why? Well, it goes back to the God-man. He gave us this collection of documents. And he's like, this thing points to me. And then he gave us documents written by his apostles. And he's like, they're going to talk about how it points to me. And I trust that. So those are the three die fours for me. And I I know that that's controversial and it can even be difficult to hear, but um, I, I see no way around that. Now, divide for seems just like to be a staple of our country right now. It seems to be just where we are as a nation. Yeah. What would be something you'd say maybe as an example of, hey, we really can't agree on this, and so we should probably not move forward? Yeah, gosh. This one is my, this one is, I, I hate this category the most. Um, <laughs> because I, I think that category exists purely to see how, how few things we can have in it. Like, it's like, the whole point of that category is to take stuff out of it. How much can we push, how many issues can we push down from divide down to just happy debate or, or normal decide? Um, so if you're a Christian, then you gotta, wrestle, you gotta wrestle with the text of scripture. And I think when you wrestle with the text and you get to things like baptism, like, so if you're a Presbyterian, you may baptize little babies 
And if you're, this is a, this is actually a big deal in church history. People fight about this one a lot. Can I baptize a baby who has no clue what's going on or is a credible profession of faith required for baptism? I, I personally land on the profession. Like you have, there has to be a credible profession of faith in order for baptism to be legitimate. But there's strong, strong arguments against that. Um, Pedo-baptism is, is a hallmark of major denominations in America. People baptize babies all the time, and I think it's great. I disagree with it um, based on text, and they disagree with me based on text, and, and I think that's great. Here's the divide issue, though. If, if we're, like, serving at the same church, and, and we find out an elder at the church is, like, like, hardcore, we have to baptize every baby that's born this year or whatever, I'd be like whoa and then we'd end up getting into it and we find out oh this isn't this isn't just a happy debate there's literally no way forward right now logically um then that would be like i (laughs) i think we're fundamentally um not on the same railroad track on this uh, because that's the first command of jesus's great commission like okay you've seen me now go and make disciples how baptizing them how when they're babies no when they're and so you can't, you literally can't. Uh, and there's not very many, honestly, that fit that divide for a category. Um, there shouldn't be, at least. I know that communion can be one. I know that the Catholics and Protestants had a big kerfuffle over that one. Literal body, metaphorical body. Are you eating Jesus's muscle tissue? Uh, or is it a sacrament? You know what I mean? So, so that's a big one. But, but the, the goal of the divide for category is to, is to keep working. Ephesians 4.3, uh, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's really what these four Ds are for. What do we die for? There's only a couple. What do we divide for? Let's minimize them. Um, and why, why are we seeking this unity? I actually think... The far right folks, far left folks, and everything in between and everything beyond in San Diego, people that don't even know Jesus, people that are just happy thinking they're happy living their lives, whatever, they're going to, I believe Jesus is right. Like our unity and our ability to like love well and operate peacefully and not get bent out of shape over politics or whatever, I think that's actually incredibly attractive. And, and a city like San Diego is going to be like, how, how is there a church full of Make America Great Again hats, and and then Black Lives Matter folks all in the same church, like worshiping Jesus, putting all their issues as a second. How does that even work? Where there's actually a value above American partisan power playing going on in that church that seems like they're actually part of another kingdom. Like that's the goal of these four Ds, uh, because I think that's where a lot of the church has has been radically mistaken when there's divided loyalties. And we divide over things that we shouldn't. And when we talk about debate for, that's pretty much self-explanatory how we can enter into conversations with people. Mm. But I think maybe the key for that D would go, and I guess the question I want to ask is then how do we then leave that debate for? Mm. You know, what's the, what's the goal of that? Is it to convince the other side of our position or, or what's the end product in your opinion? Yeah. Well, when you're, when you're in a debate with someone that you're close with, 
that's the point. The point is in relationship. Um, the divide for category is about breaking that relationship because of irreconcilable differences, which is horrific. That's like a divorce. Um, so the debate for is like, you're not changing your view on X, and neither am I. But because church history has been divided on this, because the scriptures aren't 100%, 100% clear on this like they are on the resurrection or Jesus as the God-man, because of that, and because this number of scholars are on your side and that number are on my side, then I think we can grab a beer at 4.30 today or whatever and just call it quits and like remember this debate forever and maybe come back to it over another beer later. Uh, the goal is unity. That's the goal. That's the goal of all four of these Ds. Um, that's the command from Jesus. That's actually Jesus's prayer, that they would be one so the world will see that you sent me and that you love them as you love me. And we, we betray that prayer. We betray that love when we're, when we're dying for things that Jesus wouldn't have us die for. And we're dividing over things that we should just debate and have a beer or just make a decision. Um, yeah, so the, a concrete example of a debate for would be like, uh, I think, you know, I have tons of friends who would not allow women to teach in their pulpits. And, and they have like decades, centuries of scholars that back up their position biblically. And I, I disagree, and in 15 minutes I can break down a biblical argument that I think is pretty airtight on why women are absolutely gifted, called, and qualified to preach and teach alongside men as co-equal ministers of the gospel in local churches. Um, so we debate, and, and then we stay family, and we speak at each other's events, and we bring our kids to the same youth camps and the sad part is that that very issue i don't know if you've seen all the news in the last couple of months on beth moore and her her call for women to be brought up into equal status as co-laborers for the gospel um it's really exposed how deeply divisive this issue still is for so many in the american church and i think it's tragic and honestly i think it's ignorant of the actual scholarly debate on this issue um the best scholars in favor of women preaching are, if they're honest, only 80% sure that their view is 100% right. And the best scholars against women preaching and leading in the church, when they're honest, are only 80% sure <laughs> that their argument is 100% right. And so when you have that, that lack of clarity, that 20% is a big deal. We need to stay together because that 20% isn't going anywhere. Um... And so learning, learning how to make every effort to maintain the unity, I think is being faithful to Jesus's, Jesus's prayer in John 17 was in his darkest hour. It was his highest priority. Make them one. That's actually the title of my last record, <laughs> Make Us One. Um, uh, yeah, and so I, I just think that's, that's the goal. Um, there's other examples of, de there's tons of examples of debate for issues. I, I actually think pacifism is another one. Like, can and should Christians ever kill? Like, I'm, I'm pretty much with Shane Claiborne on that. Um, I heard his podcast on your, uh, on the dismantle, his conversation with you. 
And it's super convincing. Like I read Hauerwas, I read Yoder, I read I read the, a lot of Boyd, I read Claiborne, I read Preston Sprinkle, and these guys they come at it differently with different commitments to, you know, evangelical theology or whatever. But they end up in the same place that Jesus commands us not to kill our enemies, but to love our enemies. How do you love someone once they're dead? And and so. <laughs> And so, uh, but, but there's another elder, listen, there's another elder at our church that I'm like joined with, committed to our community with, who's like, dude, you're, you're so wrong, Evan. Like, there's no way. Like I, he's, he owns a gun and he's, and, and he would, he would absolutely, um, die. He would take a bullet as he'd be a body shield for people. Um, but in push comes to shove situations, he's like, Hey. Let's talk about the attacker at the door. Let's talk about these hypotheticals. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. And and at that point, we all would like to say what we'd want to do. <laughs> we'd love our enemy at the door who wants to do us violence. But what would we really do? That's the question. And and I think that's a debate for. I think the, ch- the church for 2,000 years hasn't had a unified witness on that. The first 300 years was pretty unified. No Christians killed any Romans who were trying to kill them. But after that, you have Augustine and later Aquinas developing just war theory. And you have 1,700 years of Christians going back and forth. Can and should Christians be combatants in the military? Should they carry um, as police officers? Should they carry as civilians? Um, and and I, I, I have, like, in the debate for category, you can get really growly at people. But at the end of the day, you open an IPA. I don't know why I keep going back to beer. I was going to say, this process Uh, sounds delicious. Yeah, you open a double IPA and you're like, you know what? Let's shelf that debate. Let's talk about our kids or let's talk about something else. Um, Yeah, and some of those those debate for issues can end up bubbling up and crossing the line into divide for, I think. And, And maybe, maybe some of them should, but that's a sad day. That's a hard day. So then finally, what is decide for? What does that look like? How does this process of the three Ds thus far then take this final D and move forward? Yeah, I mean, that's like, I've been talking about it all podcast. That's like beer, like alcohol, like, like can and should Christians drink? Let's just decide and move on. It's not even a debate. Um, and sadly, I, you know. I'm very well aware of many other leaders who make this a divide, like not just debate, but divide for, uh, bringing down what I believe are just blatantly unbiblical requirements and rules for entire congregations on the consumption of alcohol. There's no debate on drunkenness. So buzz, tipsy, drunk, whatever you want to call that spectrum of inebriation, I, I actually think that's incompatible with the way of Jesus. But there's there's a there's a long buffer, not long. It's different for everyone. But there's a bu- everyone has a buffer, where you know there's a reason why Jesus. <laughs> it's interesting how Jesus brings out the best stuff at the wedding at Cana, to a to a wedding of already wasted people, <laughs> and and they made more. Now that's I don't think that's an argument for drinking once drunk, um, or getting drunk at all. I I think that's sin. Uh, but there's 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 one verse in Proverbs 23 that says, don't even look at the wine glass. And then there's a verse in Psalms where David's like, 
give thanks to God who gives wine to make our hearts happy. And, and, and it's almost like, did David even read the Proverbs? And, and so you take the whole unified biblical witness on alcohol and you realize, oh, um, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. That's all we can say. Let's go get a beer. Like it's, we're, we've just made a decision. It's not even a debate. Um, and there are m- many things like that, but that's the first one that comes to my mind. <laughs> so somebody's maybe listening and they're a church leader, or maybe they're just a congregant and they're loving these four D's. What's one way that we as the church can then take these and start applying them? Because, you know, we can get overwhelmed with a paradox of choice of where do we even begin? How do we even start? And then we just don't do anything. But how do we step into this? What's a first step? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the first step, just talking about them and getting on the same page. Uh, Brene Brown, famous sociologist, she, she's, I love what she said about clarity. Uh, clarity is kind. Unclarity is unkind. No matter what a nice guy you think you are. Like, that's been the learning for me as a leader, as a church planter. I thought I was the nicest guy in the world. And every staff, I mean, we didn't even have a staff. We just had friends. And we just like had wine and bread and communion and a celebration at every staff meeting that went into the night. I was like, this is awesome. I'm like the Lego guy. Everything is awesome. Everybody's cool when you're part of this team. Um, and and I, I, I realized over the course of 12 to 18 months, as people start expressing frustration, that I, I'm super unclear and I'm the nicest jerk ever because unclarity is unkind. And, and so you can talk about these four D's as a church in a way that fosters clarity. Um, churchclarity.org is an organization that um, has made it their mission to just get churches clear on their stance on sexuality um, LGBTQ inclusion, affirmation, all of that, and uh, and women in leadership. And I think regardless of where you might land on that issue, clarity is a good thing. Clarity is kind. Um, and, and if you can clarify what your die-for issues are as a community— and I'm speaking to Christians. So as a community that claims to follow a Messiah, a rabbi, who made ethical claims and ontological claims about himself, like he, he thought he was something more than human, what will you do with that claim? Um, he actually claimed to be everything Israel's God was. And he claimed to do what only Israel's God could do. So I'm, I'm going to make a die-for issue, the reality that Jesus is God and human. And, and once you can clarify that for your community, if you're a leader or pastor listening to this, clarify your die-fors, make them as succinct as you can, and, and, then, and then move down. Spend as much time as you can on die-fors. Teach on them. Have a year-long sermon series on the die-fors. Um, don't hone in on the divide force, but when you do talk about the divide force, make them also very clear. Um, you, yeah, I just know I've just I've just learned firsthand how uncl- how unkind um, nice people can be. <laughs> nice people can be so unkind. 
because of a lack of clarity on the things people are really wounded about or concerned about or questioning. Evading questions is, is so unkind, even if you do it in the nicest email possible. Um, and we actually don't answer controversial emails. We'll say, oh my gosh, set up a physical appointment right now. Like next Sunday, you have my full attention and eye contact. Um, whether it's on sexuality or, uh, again, women in leadership, those seem to be the two big ones now. And we, this is too important for email. <laughs> Let's meet in person. All the elders are there. Which leaders do you want to talk to? We're there for you. Let's do this. That's that's a huge value for us. Um, and so, uh, so die for, yeah, just clarity. I would say clarity is kind, unclarity is unkind. Talk about them. Nothing is off the table. Nothing's off limits. Go there all the time in person with everyone who asks. It's a great word, man. Thank you. And thank you so much for being a guest on the show. If people wanted to connect with you online, maybe the church or even some of your music, where could they do that? Yeah. So our website, evanwickham.com um, or, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever the socials are, they're all out there. And yeah, a couple records on iTunes, four of them. Um, and yeah, the church that I lead, Park Hill Church in San Diego, uh, parkhillsd.church, you know, teaching series and all of that. And we're just watching God wake people up to the good news that he's good. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Oh, not a problem, man. It has been such a great conversation. Thanks again. For sure. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not conflicts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.